What the fuck is self-quar? Hey, 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 if you recognize that reference and you know what's happening, then you know that this is self-quar. Hello, everyone. Baron Vaughn speaking. Welcome to my show. I'm doing an introduction right now. Can't you tell what I'm doing with my voice? I don't know what's happening right now, um, even though I do, because I'm, I'm speaking. Anyway, last podcast, I did not have an introduction. I decided to start with uh, Caddy Corner, <laughs> a.k.a. Katrina in the committal, um, or whatever. Um, and I think we're going to do that again today. You know, Katrina and I have, in a sense, been getting to know each other over this podcast because, you know, I don't, I don't consider a um, hundred conversations with someone knowing them. You know what I mean? My guest is Linda Martine Alkov, a.k.a. Dr. Linda Martine Alkov. Uh, she is a philosopher and a professor and author of uh, really fantastic books. And she speaks on oof, many different subjects. And again, I don't want to like over introduce Linda, but basically there's this podcast that I really love called Unmute, hosted by Maisha Cherry, who is another philosopher and author that I really respect and admire. And I heard Linda on that podcast. That's the first time I had heard of her and I'd heard of her work. She wrote a book called The Future of Whiteness. So she is a person who has thought about and defined and theorized about how whiteness functions philosophically. Now, what the heck does that mean, you're asking? Um, that's what I asked. <laughs> And that's why I was like, gotta listen. What, what is she talking about? So it's, it's, and the other thing I like about Linda and Maisha and that podcast on mute, which I highly recommend you check out, is that these are people who are trying to take these lofty ideas and make them applicable. And also they're looking at society and culture and behavior and thinking about the ways that all of these things work together. But they have a, approach that is philosophical. You know, I, I can't even, I don't even know what that means uh, because obviously I have not studied philosophy. I am what we call an office room chair philosopher, not even an armchair philosopher. No, 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 no. I'm asleep if I'm in an armchair. I am an armchair napper. I'm an office chair philosopher. That's right. I spin in a circle if I'm in an office philosophizing to those who will listen so that way I never get back to what I'm supposed to be doing, like this introduction. Um, so anyway, I'm going to now throw it to Katrina and I talking about what we talking about. Um, I will say this is my favorite file name for our recording thus far. Uh, Katrina Time. <laughs> yes. Katrina with a Q. Time and spelled like the herb. <laughs> because if there's two things I know about you is that you like herb and you like Q. A lot of people don't know about your 8chan past. Don't eat. Oh, my God. You're so funny. I know, I'm joking. You're, you're, it's, you can't even joke about it because then people will be like, exactly. oh. I can't even say 
it out loud. I just have to react to the things that you say. And then you're like, don't you? Ah! Are they listening? Stop. Um, so. more of conspiracies. What's going on with you? How's, um, how's things? What's up? I'm pretty good. I um, stayed up late last night listening to the podcast. But I like, I like got a lot. I was like going to nap at some point yesterday. But then instead of falling asleep, I got a bunch of stuff done. By a bunch, I mean like three things, and I was just like, "Oh, it's fucking on!" And so I feel like I got a lot of stuff done yesterday. So. But you got a like, but you had like a what was like a third a third wind late at night in the morning. Yeah. So now I feel prepped for a day of like enough stuff, but I get to chill pretty early. So I'm like, hmm. I feel like I'm kind of falling into whatever my new rhythm of whatever my life is gonna be post. Um, pandemic maybe, or like ooh. Pandemic, what that's gonna look like maybe. What is what? Oh, tell me more about that. So, like, what are you discovering to be true? Well, I got laid off. So, well, that I knew the first time in my life that I haven't had like a forty-hour work week immediately dictating like most of my adult life. So then Katrina had to figure out. Okay, if if my time is not fully wrapped up. Yeah. In someone else's yeah. tasks, yeah. then what? Right. Because it's like the things that I am responsible for, for the job that I have now, uh, do not luckily take as much time and are a lot more fun than what I was doing before. So now I have a lot of, like you're saying, okay, now what? Like I feel... um not in a bad way pressure, but kind of like, okay, you have all of this additional time now. Like, what are you going to do with it? Um, and sometimes it is, especially still now, like resting and doing nothing. But I feel like I am like, as the summer starts trying to make myself accountable for what I know, like, I know how much, like, I know what it feels like to spend 40 plus hours of a week in an office so knowing that I'm spending however many X hours making enough to, you know, support myself now and being like, okay, what is the additional time left now? And, you know, how can I best make that like benefit my life? Even if it's just like going on walks or going to museums or stuff like that, but like getting used to being like, it's the middle of the day and I can do something worthwhile. Like, even I feel like I was in this weird paralyzed thing where I wouldn't have work to do, but I'm so used to having to be at home, even when my day job was off um, work from home last year, mm-hmm. it was still kind of like you couldn't just go during the day and not be, you know, reachable. No, I remember seeing all these different articles about like when the, you know, like two months, maybe three months in the pandemic that was, uh, you know, it was for people who were working at home. And it's like all the spyware that your job is using to make sure that you're oh, it was like the obsession with being at desk clocking in like it was like the 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 nickel and diming about minutes and seconds mm-hmm. seemed to be more intense. That's what I heard from a lot yes. of people who and had people, like, there were definitely people that I worked with that felt pressure like that. And I was just like, mm. I've just always kind of been 
in the camp of I'm ready to go to bat for myself. So even when things were maybe like slower or something like that, I was kind of always like, yeah, but I, before I, you know, let my laptop go to sleep was very aware of where I was at on all my projects. So if someone tried to come at me, it would be like, what would I have been doing? You know what I mean? Like all my work is at a place where I could kind of take a break. So, but there were people that were like terrified to not yeah. look like they were doing something. Well, and that's, that's kind of what I'm curious about because work is this weird thing <laughs> in which, okay, here's the thing that I feel like everyone in the United States has just accepted to be true about work. Um, that it is okay to motivate you through intimidation and fear. That it's okay to but that's that the only thing that works. Yes, and so like the whole of the whole of management, the like just the idea of how we've created companies and corporations, and just how we even think about um, motivating people to do their work is always in some very negative, very scary, like, place, especially since we have, you know, undone every union, you know, left and right. right. So it's kind of like being, oh, if I don't, if I get on the bad side of my, you know, boss, or if I don't get enough certain things done by the, but that feeling, guess what? Doesn't help you be pro productive. Like right. feeling fully stressed out and scared yeah. the entire time doesn't and actually do anything that. for you. Yeah, and I, well, everything that you were saying when you started about that fear and everything, I do think, at least at some jobs, is kind of them, them leveling with themselves and knowing that people don't want to be there, at least as long as they want them to be there. You know what I mean? So I think hmm. the idea of using that fear and intimidation, even is it, if it is like the threat of losing your livelihood, is also based on a society of people that we assume are doing something that they wouldn't electively be doing. Like these people aren't necessarily working at what they love. So you're, you you're a captive be there. Yeah. Right. So even the idea of like the job I'm doing now, it's like, I want to do more projects when I finish stuff. I'm like, Oh, I'm done. Like what can, what's the next one that I can do? You know what I mean? It's like, Short of me just being a type A person that wants to get something done once it's tasked to me, it is... Katrina, execute this. And you're like, click, next. Yes, exactly. Which I feel like I'm just constantly striving to have nothing on my list because then I feel like that's the ultimate chill. Is being that's the feeling of accomplishment. Yes. Hmm. Um, Interesting. But when it's for yeah. you, when you are self-motivating... And when you yeah. are finding out... Now, what... It's like finding that accomplishment in things that I write on my own list. That's what I feel like I'm adjusting to. Is like that made like only what a third of that list now is maybe something that somebody else has thrust upon me. And the rest of it is, you know, the list of my own making, which is exciting. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's not bad. You know, it's not like a pressure that's bad, but it... Had, does have a lot of potential that makes me kind of like, like, see, like, okay, we'll see, like, what happens this summer and stuff like mm, that. Yeah. Mm. And what do you mean by that? We'll see what happens this summer. I don't know, because I feel like we're on the precipice of seeing if more things open up, if other opportunities that maybe were put on hold the past year and a half maybe 
spring forth from the ashes and things like that. Yeah, and I think that um, that's the thing that I think is weird mm-hmm. is that everyone is so hyped to get back to what exactly? I mean, outside of oh yeah, I don't know the feeling like. of productivity and mm-hmm. things happening. Like, you know, we also have, we keep forgetting, I feel like, because people want to forget because it's been so long, that we have been kept inside, you know, in some way of our own making. And even if we're not inside, it's like this whole thing of having to navigate the world, you know, with this virus before there were vaccines. Still, people are of 80 billion different minds about the vaccines. Uh Um, You know, I just saw something about how, like, the United States is not going to achieve herd immunity because there's enough people that refuse to take the vaccine. I heard people, yeah, talking about that. So it's kind of like, oh, okay, so we're... we're... (sighs) And that's all I got. Mm -hmm. We're... uh... Well, and when I say, like, things... um... I feel like the just sheer fact that LA is, you know, this week doing or the end of this week, what's today, Wednesday, doing reopening a few things inside. Yeah. Whatever's happening. Yeah. So I'm I guess that's what I'm speaking to in terms of like we'll see what happens this summer. I'm feeling like I'm, there is a, an attempt of something happening. Okay. Um And here's what I'm aiming at. I guess I'm trying to put together these two things because it's kind of like, you know, and I feel like this will also get us you know, set us up for our guest a little bit as well because there is this reentry anxiety, right? And there's this expectation because if California or Los Angeles, whatever, reopens, then there's the expectation to get back to fucking work, right? (laughs) And so, again, everybody has to kind of go back to this, oh, shit, now I'm being motivated by someone else's tasks and being motivated by fear and intimidation on top of this pandemic, which isn't done, Mm -hmm. really, on top of the fact that we have suffered a collective trauma. I do feel like, well, okay, I'll try to go in. So how do you maintain? I would, oh, what? How do you maintain in that environment what you're talking about, the shit that is we'll see. I feel like- a list of my own making, which is one of my t-shirt ideas, a list of my own making. <laughs> um, also, fuck yo list. That's another t-shirt <laughs> that you were going to say, Katrina. Um, well, I do. Okay, so I feel like you just said a lot of things that I totally um, agree with and have also considered because I do. <laughs> well, thanks. Talk in, to you later then. Well, in terms of collective trauma, I would say that on the whole, um, Americans are still, I feel like we're in an LA bubble where people um, are far more privy to like therapy and talking about their feelings and verbalizing or expressing in some way uh, their um, negative feelings about a lot of mm-hmm. uh, things, the stress and everything that's happened about a lot of, you know, like you're saying, everything that's happened in the past, what year and a little bit now. Um, but on the whole, I would say that we are probably going to just pile this on and have a lot of people that want to like swallow it. And just like you're saying, even if part of their denial is just immediately pretending that they can get back to normal, 
Um, which I say that to bring another thing to mind of what you said is I do, I was thinking about this last night about the improv opening and thinking that there are a lot of people that want to get back to normal and are super ready and feel like they're ready. There are going to be people that have like full blown panic attacks in like a 75% capacity room. I think that what, and this is me thinking about the way my anxiety, like I mm. had a couple full blown major anxiety attacks, but they always sneak up on me. It's always on some suppressed shit where you think everything is cool. Like I'm just trying to push through. It's always like an event or something where I'm just trying to stay focused on whatever the task is at hand. So I can see people getting all excited for their first night back out in the real world because they're quote unquote over it and then losing their fucking mind because no, because they have not at all considered Mm. the magnitude of like you're saying the actual, because I feel like I live by myself. So I've had little tastes of like, I stayed inside to preserve a COVID test that I had for a job. So I fully stayed inside, did not go outside at all of my one bedroom apartment for like a week and a half. And I driving to that job was like freaking out about cars and was like, see, I need to go back inside. Like my level of stress and irritation got high so fast from not having to interact Mm. with one or you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think that we, oh, I think that if I could, if I could summarize slash paraphrase, yeah, I think it's that we don't know what we actually have become used to. Mm, yes, I think that we're right and so unaware of our new habits. Oh, yes, agreed. But I will say, listening to this uh, episode kind of made me feel an optimistic version of what Linda was talking about, but... An optimistic version of what Linda was yes, talking about. Because, okay, what, what was Linda talking about? I don't thing? know if this is going to be too, you know, uh, personal for you, but the things that we've been talking about with doing the podcast and talking to people that you, like, respect on a high level and feeling uncertain about your footing and what things sound like or whatever it is in that realm but listening to you feel unsure but also happy at the same time (laughs) made me feel a weird sense of comfort about how little we know about the vaccine things opening up if they'll stay open spikes all of that stuff that we don't know Mm -hmm. I feel the same kind of weird, uncertain trust about. And the only thing that I have is the proof that we've made it through the past year and a half. Because no one knew any of that stuff was going to happen either. And all of what you just said about the unknowing survival that has kicked in, that we just all have continued to exist, has brought us this far. So I'm just going to keep trusting in that. Damn, Katrina lift us up where we belong. It's Katrina time. No herbicide. And now for a monologue.
Jake. Thank you, Jake. How you doing today, Jake? Oh, really? No, not really. Well, are you gonna talk to somebody about that? Look, it's impossible for me to talk to a psychiatrist. Well, yeah, you're probably entitled to a good punching. Excuse me? Well, no, I mean, not you get the punching. I mean, you might legally be entitled to punch someone else in the face. Yeah, I know, but uh, you know, if uh, the law wants you to be violent, the law wants you to be violent. What the hell am I talking about? I have absolutely no idea what's going on. Anyway, guys, um, <laughs> thank you, Jake, for playing along. I have no idea what Jake has inserted there, but I am excited to see. See, slash here. <laughs> Who am I, Victor Borga? Wow. Can you tell that I spent a lot of time alone? <laughs> I spent enough time alone as a child. I ended up flipping through the whole of cable and landing on Victor Borga. Does anybody even know who this guy was? He was like, I would describe him as the weird Al slash Mel Brooks of orchestra conducting. Yeah, that silence is correct. I don't even remember what I thought about it. It's just one of those names that 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 is in my head. And I remember him saying, like, and now we'll see what it sounds like. See what it sounds like. How about we look at what it sees? I forget what the... <laughs> I lost my own train of thought in the middle of it. That's how you know I'm bored with my own words. Um, okay, so here's what I wanted to talk about. Um, a lot of different things are going on right now in the world, as you know, in your life. And, um, you know, these are the themes of this podcast, I feel like. And I guess I wanted to talk to y'all about this reentry anxiety, you know, or this kind of thing that's happening now that people are getting vaccinated. Um, cities are opening up, states are opening up, you know, the the kind of I don't know if you can hear the kind of slow starting engine of commerce just purring in the background, just going, just ready to just start stomping all over everybody again. That's how I feel. And I, I have said 800 different times, this is the apocalypse and apocalypse means revelation, right? So luckily this this spiritual teacher I was taking some classes with, um, who I would think and I thought was more qualified to speak on that <laughs> idea, um, basically stole my... No, I'm joking. He didn't. Uh, but it's like, I'm just thinking about stuff that people have said before, you know, in, in ancestral stuff. So if, if apocalypse literally means revelation, then obviously a lot of things have been revealed, not only about the world that we live in, but about ourselves. And I think that for me, this has been a year of revelations. Left, right, up, down, every which way, and all around revelations. That's right. <laughs> Sorry for my um, Nile Rodgers cut right there on that funky disco track, revelations. But it is that sort of thing where... I have found out so much about myself. I have done so much personal work. I have felt 
in every cell of my body how much fear and anger and pain that I just let remain on autopilot for the majority of my existence and how so much of this external stimulus just constantly drives me back into that feeling, into those feelings, no matter what. No matter what, like it's not even like there's not that logical reasoning, you know, it's a physical reasoning. And and the reasoning is that my, my, I'm stuck, you know, that's what trauma is. I'm reliving something that is, that is over that I haven't processed, you know, or reliving a lot of things that I, my body doesn't know is over that I haven't processed. And process doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, I figured it out. And then you shit out your trauma, flush it down the toilet. Uh, no, that's not how it happens. I am now realizing that it's not as simple as you just one day suddenly the thought occurs to you. Man, someone said it really well to me crystallizing. I, I sit here and I think that all of the ideas I have will at least, they'll crystallize into something that is more succinct. That it'll all kind of like just hit some sort of interesting bottleneck and drip this pure idea that'll solve my problems or at least give me the ability to, to step forward, to move forward to begin to let go will happen. But that's, I, I, you know, I didn't know that that's what I was doing, but that's what I now see that I have been doing. Even if I thought I wasn't, but now I see that I have to actively create this practice of reversing this. And there hasn't, I guess I'm sometimes looking for that crystal idea, that idea that makes me go, that's what it is. And then just my whole being will just click in the click, figured it out, do, 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 like, like I'm a reverse Jenga puzzle. Like I am falling over, you know, have no center, and I'm looking for all these different pieces that I'll just be able to put into all these other spots that have missing support to be able to finally stand tall. And now I see that what I got to do is reverse that shit. I got to put my thing down, flip it, and reverse it. Who said that? Some great philosopher, another great philosopher. And now with that um, little piece of, ah, Mmm, oh, <laughs> just in all the other vowels in emotional sound style. Jake, a drum roll, please. Not that kind of drum roll. Mm, next. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Please welcome Dr. Linda Martine Alkov. Go time. Oh, that's me. Excuse me. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. Salt and pepper and heavy D up in the limousine. Hanging pictures on my wall. Every Saturday, rap attack, Mr. Magic, Molly Mall. I let my tape rock till my tape pop. Smoking weed and bamboo, sipping on private stock. Way back when I had the red and black lumberjack with the hat to match. Remember rap? So I know you as a, as a philosopher uh, and a professor, writer, lecturer, etc. 
Um, but you're a doctor as well, right? So it's like you have a PhD. So you're doctor, professor, professor, doctor. Yes, you can call me that, doctor, professor. I like that. Okay, perfect, perfect. <laughs> but because I'm interested in in hearing about, um, I guess who Linda is, you know, because and not necessarily from, you know, I don't, I don't want to push you to be uh, negative or vulnerable. I'm just uh, interested always in how people deal you know with especially with what's going on right now i mean there's so many layers to what's happening um and uh so i guess my first question is what are the multiple layers you think are happening and secondly how the fuck do you deal <laughs> well you you said it uh in one of your podcast here this line that i liked about kind of watching the end of empire in slow-mo you know because i think the right. pandemic has brought out a crisis not only in the u.s but globally mm-hmm. you know with the vaccine apartheid as people call it oh um, wow yes yeah around the world you know and if you look at the countries that don't have the vaccines and the countries that do have the vaccines, it's like colonialism never ended. Absolutely. It's the rich countries and the and the countries that were colonized by those countries. So you're you know, it's things are coming to a head um, because of the pandemic in certain ways. Not as you know, not that I think revolutions around the corner, but I think also the um, the racist violence. And the, just sort of the, you know, I'm, I'm in New York mm. City, and I've been here the whole time. Oh, wow. Okay. I did not know that. Yeah. And, you know, the sirens, the morgues in the street, Oof. the, um, you know, real economic crisis that people are in. They're calling in on the radio, and they're, they're crying on the radio now, talking to the mayor these days. It's just, mm. you know, it's such a, it's intense. It's in, in, intense here. And so you're just watching this um, and wondering what's going to happen because we've all lost our sense of predictability and control and, uh, you know, the safety net. Uh, the lack of a safety net is more apparent than ever. So it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting, I mean, because I am a philosopher, so I kind of, you know, I find things interesting. Yes, yes. <laughs> it does affect me, and I can talk about that. But I also find it interesting, you know, to see what happens when shit goes down. You know, yes, what, of course. How do people react? How do different people react? What do they do? I mean, it's, isn't that what the heart of philosophy time. is? Well, some philosophers like to stay in the clouds, mm. you know, and just talk to each other up in the clouds. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I think those... But that's not I you. The, no. No. The best and the best, um, most creative philosophical work, I think, has been motivated by engaging with what's, mm. going, to, what's going on and trying to, to make some sense of it and trying mm-hmm. to figure out um, how to take advantage of it to make some moves. Mm. And... Um, yeah, I'm kind of a non-standard philosopher. I don't come from a um, 
financially secure background. Mm -hmm. I'm uh, mixed race. I'm an immigrant from Central America. Um, I'm usually the only person in the room, like myself in philosophy, you know, meetings a lot of times, although it's changing. But I'm kind of non standard. What do you mean, like yourself? I mean, like um, not being from a typical upper middle class family that went to all the, the good schools and private schools all the way through that sort of thing, you know? Right, right, right. But that's why, um, I really admire the work that, that someone like yourself does and some of the company that you keep, I guess, because there's this sense of application, I guess, and a sense of, it's what I always aspired or what it's always what I thought that a comedian or an artist worth their salt was doing. I mean, I always used to think um, a comedian is part philosopher, anthropologist, sociologist, and psychologist, but they better be funny. Like that's that's what they that's what they all that's what all of the things that I've always thought like I should be curious about. Because if I'm going to examine the way that people do things, then you know. Isn't that what all of these things are, or these these different fields of store uh, of study? Even though I don't know a lot of the, because I come from an arts background as well, mm-hmm. um, and a similar background to yourself, except for the mixed race part. Uh, except I used to have a joke that I my, I was mixed race, that my mother's black and my father was absent. Uh, that's an old <laughs> joke of mine. So I'm half black, half empty. That's a very old <laughs> joke of mine. <laughs> that always made people uncomfortable, but it's it, I like to push those. Those those buttons, right? So, and those buttons, I think, is what someone like yourself is interested in, especially with the things that you've decided to study. And I'm not necessarily here to be like, what do you study? You know, like I said, I want to talk to Linda. But I would assume that you've already pointed out, like, you know, the disparity between uh the vaccine apartheid, like the global South and what we're doing up here. Right. And then just also, uh, I forgot that you're in New York, of course, cause you, you, uh, you teach in New York. And so there's also the experience of being in a city like New York, which is so it's definitively metropolitan. And then this thing that is, I call it death by breath just when you're all up in people's space all the time and the way that it went down there and it sounded horrifying. <laughs> it sounded horrifying. And do you see, do you feel like a sense of cognitive dissonance right now? Yeah. People are having reentry anxiety, you know, mm. like I have not taken the subway yet in a year, um, which is really weird to think that it's been a year and a month since I've been on the subway. Um, I'm lucky because I can work at home, although, you know, we we got exactly one week to learn how to teach virtually at the City University of New York. We didn't have a lot of tech support, but um, but I'm still lucky that I can work at home and teach at home. But, yeah, it's now it's um, opening up a little bit and people are resisting going there and, you know, because it is crowded in New York. Um, there's a lot going on and and people are hurting and crazy and, you know, having trouble. And all of that happens on the street in New York. That doesn't just happen in your house. That happens on the sidewalks mm. in 
in mass transportation and in places where people are together. Mm-hmm. So there's there's uh, there's some craziness in New York right now. It's uh, I think you know the the people. It's really that term I use, financial security. Mm-hmm. It's that's the dividing line. People who managed this crisis and maintained their financial security did not really lose anything. They were able to get out of the city or they were able to um, keep working or make more money, right? There were loads of people who made more money um, from this crisis um, versus the people who, you know, everything dropped out. That's the dividing line. Mm-hmm. And and I don't I don't I think it's it's been a point of cognitive dissonance um, to watch, but I don't I don't have any illusions that those people who um, made money or stayed secure mm-hmm. during this crisis are going to have any enlightenment about how unjust the world is mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. change their way of doing things. Mm-hmm. I think the um, there's change afoot elsewhere, but not among that class. Hmm. Well, that sets me up for a new question, but I did want to get back to my original, how the fuck do you deal uh, question. Well, I, um, you know, it's been not easy. <laughs> it has not been easy. I, I love my ability to speak. Um, and you know, one thing that you do is you you find yourself hiding your mental state from your coworkers. You know, you you, you put on you put on this happy, happy face, face, yeah, and you you laugh a lot. Another mask. Yeah, yeah, because you know the the despair and depression and and uh, difficulties. Um, manifest themselves on a daily basis. Um, I think everybody's job got harder or almost Mm. everybody's job got harder to do if you were lucky enough to keep your job. Mm -hmm. And if you have other life challenges, um, which I do along with a lot of other people that got harder to do. Mm. So, uh, I, I read all the articles on what you should do, and I follow them. I write little lists, like, and my list might say, <laughs> uh, do sit-ups today and get outside of the apartment today. Oh, wow. <laughs> call, call somebody today. I have to write it down because my normal, you know, when you're in this kind of bad state, your normal um, operation is not going to necessarily do what you need to do. So you have to kind of prod yourself, you know, to do what you have to do. And do you find yourself, you know, because you're saying like, and I, I agree with you about the whole shit, the shit going down. Because I kind of always fancy myself a bit of a weather systems analyst. I think about, I try to think about cultures in big picture, but also how those little things all splinter. And I always feel like there's so many examples in in history, but of course there's always one thing, at least one thing that every time something like this has happened has been unique to each time. And I think like 
obviously the the connectivity that we have in a technology sense is unique, but the wealth disparity, I think, is also the amount of wealth, I guess, on the planet. And I keep thinking about this thing that I heard in um, – are you uh, familiar with uh, – I don't know if it's Thomas or Thomas because he's French. Piketty, have you heard of this person? Yeah, followed him a little bit, read a little bit. Yeah, well, there's this – he makes this claim about the inherited wealth that's about to be transferred that is – he said it's like just like $12 trillion dollars of inherited wealth is just about to be given to people that would create this wealth disparity that is very much like 18th, 19th century England and France is what he said. Your thoughts? <laughs> well, I like Piketty. I don't know how to pronounce it either, no. actually. But uh, he doesn't talk about changing production, though. He just talks about changing distribution. He's got some good ideas about how to put a tax on financial transactions and that sort of thing. It would make a huge difference. But it's basically what the Europeans call social democracy. It's it's raising the floor. It's, in, you know, so that the, the gap is less extreme, mm-hmm. providing more social services. But it's not, it's not fundamentally challenging the way capitalism operates in terms of producing value, in terms of deciding what to produce, mm. right? What needs to be produced? Do we do we really need another pair of designer shoes um, to be <laughs> designed and produced and sold and marketed and advertised? As you say, it's the end of, you see the end of empire and you kind of the slow motion civil war happening mm-hmm. in the United States that's got race and class components to it um, in combination. And we need to really, uh, it's, it's not going to change unless we make some more fundamental changes. Um, and I think this is an opportunity. The crises are an opportunity. Uh, to, to push. People think now you can't do it. Like austerity um, uh, budgets are being imposed in a lot of cities in the United States. Mm-hmm. But austerity doesn't work. In the last crisis in 2008, Brazil, places like Brazil and, and Bolivia and Iceland fared better than almost any other country in the world because they gave money actually to the working class as a stimulus. Mm. So they didn't pull back from social services. They put in social services and they put in money, money, you know, into um, the working class pockets Mm -hmm. who then spend it at their local bodegas and spend it in their local um, shoe stores and stimulated the economy. So that, um, you know, uh, the austerity budgets, this is not a time to do austerity budgets. But that's always um, what we go a, to, isn't it? It, it is. Why and, is you know, that? You th- the money is there, right? The mo- In New York, oh my God, the money is there. It's, it's not that there's not money. It's that it is tied up in private, private funds, private mm. pockets, private equity. So that it's Which not is the, other the money. Tangled kind of root. 
of things that are becoming clearer, I feel like, right now as well. Yeah, you know, the Paris Commune that happened 150 years ago this year, um, 18, you were talking about like 19th century crises. In 1871, um, workers took over Paris for six weeks and held off um, the uh, attempted return of the monarchy and everything. They did so many radical and crazy things and wonderful things. They had women's, you know, organizations and they were really trying to, uh, they, they, they broke down the guillotines that were used in the 1789 revolution and made them into monuments of peace. And they created mm. uh, the arrondissement, the, the, the system of, of decision-making block by block so that people could actually participate. Right, right, right. But, but right across from where the commune was set up was the Bank of France. Hmm. It was like, Oh, right across the street. And they didn't go there. They didn't go to the Bank of France and open up the safe and take the money. Ah. <laughs> and they were defeated. And everybody was murdered. You got to, we got to think, we got to be willing to take the money. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this on air. But no, but I mean, I mean, but this is, this is, this is, I feel like part of the thread of what's happening, you know, because this kind of actually brings us back to what is happening in um, activism right now, you know, where, I mean, obviously there's so much talk, <laughs> so much talk. There's protests happening right now as we speak in various cities around the, the country um, off of more murders that, and more shootings that just keep happening. But what becomes more and more apparent is this police state, you know, and that the, the argument for the abolition of police or refunding or defunding of police um, becomes more and more, it's being spoken more. I just feel like I'm hearing it more than I've ever heard it before. And people talking, because even just the idea of police abolition it took a long time for that to get into mainstream discourse. But now people are discussing what that actually means. Like how, okay, we've, we've now established this term, this very concept. Now here are the different strings of how it could possibly work. I guess what I was trying to aim at is that I feel like the money is hidden. You know, like so much of the money has become invisible and has become almost conceptual. Is that, does that make any sense? Yeah, and I think there's a lot of fatalism. I, I don't think that people think this is a just system. I don't think most of the non-financially secure or financially insecure folks mm -hmm. accept this as a just way to, to, to run things. But there's just a lot of fatalism about whether or not we could really change in the economic sphere. We might make some small changes in policing yet to be determined. But, uh, you know, now I've been watching the trial too. You, you, you know, the, the strategy they're using to nail Chauvin is a strategy that is designed to limit what they're after because they mm. have all these cops, uh, good cops, Presenting themselves yes, as right. good cops. Presenting so you have to defend those good cops. Yeah, and uh, I don't think this is going to help us keep this stuff from 
from continuing to happen. Because you're right, it's a it's like a police riot. It's like the police are in a war on people in the street, certain people. As if they're saying this is ours. As if they're saying we run this place. You know, that's what I feel like the message I get is, you know, and that's always the message I felt I got growing up is I am a guest in their, you know, territory. There was no gang that was scarier, <laughs> you know, than the police um, where I grew up. So it was like, because they didn't know me, I don't know them, you know, and it was always like, they don't know I'm like a nerdy, you know, video game playing, whatever, if I just look a certain way. And it was never a joke to me. And I guess that this, I guess I always think about, um, it makes me think of like what I know about ancient Rome and emperors, I guess, being placed there by the military. Like the military would essentially take over and put somebody there that they wanted to be there. And I think we've, we've done a lot, you know, I don't know enough about it, but like, it feels like the police are that, <laughs> you know, like they're, they're trying to, it's, it's law and order, you know, in these streets. And that's not as if to say that that's what they're going to do. They're, it's almost like they're just, sometimes I feel like they're naming this land law and order that they use it like that. that you know, does that make any sense? It's a reactionary show too, I think. Law and order, promoting pro-police views. Oh, you're talking about the show, the TV show. Yeah. I mean, I think the police are functionaries for elites um, and have always been since slavery. And a lot of the practices we see today can you know, c connect back to them. Mm -hmm. But it feels, it does feel sometimes like they're operating independently, like the fourth estate. They um, keep Mayor de Blasio in line. They keep some mayors in line by mm -hmm. threatening to, threatening to uh, do a, you know, a slowdown and change the numbers on the gun violence and keep people from getting reelected. So they, they have, mm -hmm. they have some power. And since, Political Since, power. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and a lot of people's, a lot of, you know, working class people have a family member who are in the police, so people feel mm -hmm. mixed about it. And since the 80s, when they've been militarized and armed to the teeth and organized in that way and trained to bring tanks in, they, uh, I, I think, I think this is just the result. It's not a bad, it's not a bad individuals. It is the result of that decades long process of, of increasing and amplifying, you know, the methods and the attitudes and the militarist attitude toward the civilian population, uh -huh. especially uh -huh. in certain neighborhoods um, in the United States. It's, it's going to keep happening. Unless we reverse course. And that's that kind of brings me back to, uh, well, brings me back to, I never even started this, uh, about, you know, the concept of whiteness and white supremacy. Because this, this you know, you mentioned slavery even in, in the, uh, I remember some poets I, I heard say, he put the words overseer and officer together. And I, ever since then, I was like, I've never not seen the word officer and not thought overseer. 
ever since that. And uh, I don't even know if that's where the word officer <laughs> comes from. No, they, they are an ur of the office. Um, what was I aiming at? I feel like, oh, yes. So obviously in this pandemic, we have seen sort of, well, we've come out of what I would call the Trump era um, into the Biden era, even though I don't know that the Trump era, I say the Trump presidency into the Biden presidency. I don't think the Trump era is far from, mm-hmm. is, Trump era is far from over. Yeah. But we, we've sort of, I always felt like during GW that with his evangelical message, it sort of woke up this, I don't want to say a monster that was asleep because it wasn't like it wasn't there. But this fusion of, of religion and politics was a bit bigger to me than it was before him. And I don't know what your experience, uh, what you would say about that, but like, Ever since him, I've always been looking or feeling this sort of monster wake up even bigger. And this sort of white supremacy, I guess, is what I was feeling sort of just get more and more aggressive. And especially after, you know, the events of September 11th, where this paranoia, I felt like, swept over the nation. And in this Trump presidency now, we've seen this, I don't want to say climax, (laughs) but uh, I guess I'm just asking, how do you think that that has played out? Like, how has whiteness played out in this last year? Well, I think there's two trend lines that go in opposite directions. One is that larger amounts of the white public, somewhat cross-class, have gotten clued in to the nature of the police force, for example. And they've seen it, and they've begun to participate in the resistance. And so if you look at all the opinion polls, um, the white viewpoints on how racist the society is, how racist the prison system is, how racist the justice system is, you know, is, is, is not where uh, black and black people in particular are, but it's uh, split. It's very much split um, in the white population. It, you know, varies a little bit, but so, and I think it's interesting because I think um, uh, non uh Black people had to come to this understanding. It took a lot longer to come because the knowledge was there. You know, the knowledge of how police actually treat people. You don't have to do anything wrong at all and you can get shot. Um, The knowledge was there, but the knowledge didn't circulate across to other communities. The Mm -hmm. knowledge stayed in black communities and in brown communities to some extent. And it didn't, it didn't get into the mainstream and it didn't circulate. And I remember, you know, I had this experience in college where I had gone to many demonstrations that were majority white demonstrations. And the police would come and they'd have their guns and they'd take our pictures and they'd be intimidating. But they, you know, that was it. And then I was, I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and I was in a demonstration that was majority African-American. 
And the police charged us with billy clubs and uh, picked out the men and beat them to the ground. Mm-hmm. And I was not naive. I was like, you know, radical for years. I knew my way around things. But when you see it right in front of you, you know, when you see, you know, Vietnam veterans getting hit in the head mm-hmm. um, with billy mm-hmm. clubs by police and with no warning, peaceful legal demonstration, absolutely unprovoked, it... Um, it really brings it home. It's it's really powerful, and so the, the you know even even for for uh, those people who who think they know, seeing it and the videos have done that. So I think so. There's been like of, a, a white awakening. Yeah, I think I think for certain for uh, uh, and I don't think this is gonna you know continue to get up to a hundred percent, but I think it's significant, and it means that there's coalition politics possibilities that there weren't in the past. But I think the other trend line is the um, intensity of the fear and reaction to the demographic change and Mm -hmm. the fear. And, and, and part of, you know, we have to, we have to talk about white poverty in relationship to that part of the trend line, because since the 1970s, you know, everything's gone down. Um, the white working class can no longer own a home, send their kids to college, take vacation, r- rely on retirement. It's it's all gone. And so mm-hmm. you have the op- opioid epidemic and you have suicide and you going up and you have mortality getting um, younger and younger. And so there's this, this sense of real insecurity mm-hmm. um, that certainly drove people to reject Clinton, Obama, global elite mm-hmm. kind of, you know, transnational capital representatives and to hope that Trump would be Trump would be the nationalist bourgeoisie. He was still going to be <laughs> a jerk. He was still going to treat people bad, but he was going to be loyal to the, the nation and not loyal to the transnational capital class. That was the hope. It didn't pan out. But I think hmm. that, that that's a piece of it that we need to understand with the rise of this. It's a social movement. White supremacy is a social movement. Hmm. I think we have to call it that. It's decentralized. It's complex. It's a coalition of a lot of different groups that don't all agree. Wow. And they don't. That's fascinating. And they don't, you know, just like any other left group grouping, yeah. right? They're, it's a coalition. And they're constantly re- uh, altering the, their names and the way that they mm-hmm. they you know they um, present themselves and their rhetoric and their arguments and updating mm-hmm. themselves. It's a it's a big social movement. It's participatory. It's like some mm. of it is ground up. I mean, they do get some support, <laughs> but but it is it's a real thing, and that's a big powerful trend line that is not going to go away anytime soon. But the aim of it has been to to maintain control. Well, I think the aim of it is to solve the problem of of white people's financial insecurity through shutting down immigration and beating mm. up on um, everybody the, else. Everybody else. And and uh, and if we and, just get rid if we just lock it, lock everybody that's not us up. 
things will change. Why is that so hard to? Is that is that what I'm 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 doing a, a crude summary? But is it like that? Well, there used to be whites. White workers used to be a protected class, even though there's a lot of white poor in this country who suffer a lot, and white working class people get exploited. But they mm. but there used to be you know somewhat of a protection from incarceration from the ravages of extreme hmm. poverty a privilege that's, yes that's it's you know some people say privilege is a little bit too strong if you you know if you go to walmart in rural areas you don't see a lot of white privilege <laughs> you see a lot of people who are hmm. you know um really poor and struggling yeah not well dressed and um <laughs> shall we say um, okay. And because uh, I, I go with some of my family regularly. <laughs> and uh, so, but, but they had an advantage. They had an advantage over mm. people of color to be able to hunt in the woods without being afraid that they themselves might get shot or be able to get a job without, you know, necessarily having a high school degree, you know, and be able to be treated somewhat better mm-hmm. by the police and so on and so forth. So there was a relative advantage that was significant in people's lives, very significant in people's lives right. to, to maintain some level they started of, to feel it fade as yeah. diverse as, as things that appeared to them to be diversity and all these other buzzwords started to appear. And they're like, wait a minute. Yeah. So they have a, you know, the, the, the social movements give them a, solution an answer a language and what are we giving them right what's the mainstream giving them nothing nothing Hmm. they don't give an alternative they don't address white supremacy except to talk about its uncivil behavior on january 6th problem is not civility the problem is not you know that they um broke windows. The problem is the ideology. The problem is what they think. The problem is what they believe. And we Mm. think because of free speech, we can't touch that. No, we got to touch that. We got to root it out. We got to, we got to provide an alternative and with loudspeakers and every street corner, we've got to organize. We got to out organize Mm. the white supremacists, but we have to out organize in the way that they do by giving on, you know, the true history and hmm. the true explanation and the true possibilities of of doing things differently because the status quo is not working for them either. Oof. Yeah, that's a hard one though because I feel like this there's a religiosity, you know, and an almost an obsession with this identity. You know, and with a uh, you know, and it gets mythologized in the narratives over and over again. You know, um with Trump you know, just playing Reagan's hits, you know, and stuff like that. It's like it's a spell, you know, that gets cast is how I see it. And I don't know how to break that spell. Like what could possibly break that spell? That's what I always wonder. Well, I I don't think we can reach everybody, but um, there are always these interesting stories of people who get reached who were in the Klan or were Nazis. Right, 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 right. Um, I've seen those. And it's interesting to read those and find out why. What was the point of, you know, 
departure for them and rethinking some stuff. And, and so I, I think that we can't, you know, and I say, I think it was wrong to, to classify this whole group as deplorables, for example. Hmm. On the one hand, I understand the term, uh, but on the other hand, I think we have to, um, we have to do the, the kind of organizing that Reverend William Barber and the Poor People's Campaign is doing in North Carolina, where you're actually trying to, to build coalition between poor whites and poor people of color to make change mm. and, and, and not give up on poor whites. Yeah, yeah. I guess I can think for myself, I always, because I'm a very anxious person. So when I p- picture myself uh, trying to do that, I picture myself ducking. <laughs> that's that's what I picture myself, uh, ducking and rolling. Uh, a, a lot of ducking and rolling, some Kevlar, Kevlar pants. Um, but that's, that's, yeah, that's, um, well, you, you shouldn't be doing it. I did anti-Klan organizing. We did not send our African-American comrades to those neighborhoods. You definitely can't do that. No, 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 no but not it is an interesting. Task. Yeah. <laughs> oh it's, yeah. That, and that's a big task, thing too. It's other people's tasks. Yeah. It's a, oof. um, well, that's I, I'm just gonna I'm gonna think on that. Um, you know, I also wanted to ask you before you go because I know you, you know I don't know if you you got a, you got a hard out. I did promise you a certain time. Um, this hmm, there's no other way to say it but shaking, panicking existence, and that is the thing that I have been attended to, and one of attending to, and one of the things that you know, for myself, and I guess I kind of always look at like therapy and decolonization, 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 <laughs> as they called it in Caddyshack, um, self-actualization are all the same thing because I'm, I've been always trying to separate this, what is my specific circumstances and what is society what is what are the things that have just been put on me because of my very existence and i don't know that that matters as much as i am now seeing like the nervous system if you will cause and the the effect and just that a person cannot be in this state of panic like i uh, am but that's normal to me you know that's the thing that's familiar to me because of where I grew up and how I grew up. And I guess I was wondering, like, have you had to work on things like that for yourself? Um, And, you know, as a proud 65-year-old, you know, what are the things that you uh, find yourself continuing to work on? And again, in the end, have really helped you shine a light or or find the light? Well, I think... In crisis moments like this past year, what happens is that sometimes um, we are reconnected to previous crisis moments in our life. So it seems like the worst possible time to get childhood trauma to come up, but that's when it comes up because we, we are in crisis. When I was writing my dissertation in philosophy trying to get my Ph.D., that's when my own childhood sexual assault trauma came up. It's not something I'd ever forgotten. I always knew about it, 
but it kind of really came to the surface because mm-hmm. I was under a lot of stress, a lot of strain, and a lot of pressure. And that's when my body decided to, like, you of know, <laughs> manifest. Uh, and so I had to, I, I couldn't, like, say, well, I have to focus on my dissertation. I had to figure out how to address it head on. And that's what we have to do. So self-care, I think, in this period can't be understood as like a surface thing, um, a thin, minimal kind of project, you know, have some chamomile tea and and take a walk. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because this is this is a time in which it's coming down to our bones. And for some of us that have stuff, um, it, you know, it, it rises to the surface. I, Absolutely. You know, and you know, you, you learn you 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 learn um self-forgiveness that you're not there's nothing wrong with you for having these um what appeared to be irrational I, you know, when somebody follows me or somebody's behind me or somebody's like watching me from mm. behind, I you know, I can't handle that. I have trouble walking on the sidewalk cuz I'm I've I afraid of being seen with without seeing them i mean i have all these mm. things and it's 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 know, ptsd it's, isn't that isn't that totally, ptsd totally and, yeah, yeah. It, and you feel like you know i'm a philosopher i'm supposed to be like you know <laughs> you feel so irrational and you feel mm. and you can't help but say you know what is wrong with me but but um you learn um that these memories are in the body the body has been you know, has this pattern of reaction and um, vigilance and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. in a way, a form of self-care that yes, is absolutely. not necessarily working for you. So you learn how to not try to make it go away, but how to adapt. I used mm-hmm. to be afraid of um, b- being between me and a student in the door in my office. Like, I mean, be- with a student between me and the door. In my office. Oh, that they were blocking your exit. Yes, especially. Oh, I know if it exactly a, what you're talking yes, about. Yes. yes. <laughs> and and so I I I finally decided, Linda, just move your fucking desk. <laughs> oh wow! Wow. Is that something you had control over? Yes. Yes. So hmm. it's those things which sometimes are little, but huge because it it's comes out of reorienting your understanding of cause and blame and um Mm -hmm. what you can do about it is um i think those those are the kinds of things that can help us get through our our anxieties so because you talked about being a philosopher so you have this rational self this rational mind i think and you know uh (laughs) you you think which is the most philosophery way to answer that question uh therefore you are Okay. <laughs> Don't put Descartes before the horse. Um, that's the worst. That is the worst. I'm curious about these, you know, that, because I do the same thing, you know, I'm a very rational person. And I guess I'm curious about w- what are the things that you have discovered that have helped you um, connect to your emotionality? And can I offer you some? Oh, I would love... I'll say one thing, and then please school me, Baron. I mean, I, I think I think philosophers tend to have 
a very skewed notion of what reason consists of and what mm-hmm. rationality is. So part of being a feminist philosopher and a critical race philosopher has helped me to think a little bit more broadly about the embodiment mm-hmm. of rationality and the ways in which there's a logic to the way my body's my body reacts. Yes. There's a, you know, it's not entirely irrational the way my body reacts. Um, and so uh, sort of seeing that as not the irrationality, but as um, a form of rationality, which I need to work with instead of against. Amen. That is that that is absolutely, I think, dead on. And that is the thing that I have, I guess, dedicated my life to in a sort of a way, because I feel like that is what I was taught to do in like theater school is think about the logic from how this person, what they say and what they feel and what is in their way of saying what they feel. Hence, this is the thing that they said. So like thinking about all those sort of intellectual, you know, emotional, physical layers and how all those things go together is sort of what the technique of acting and acting school is trying to teach. I think that they um, don't teach enough because I'm classically trained, which means that I've got all of these tools to like emo- uh, like access these very intense emotional places if I need to. But the the tools to let go of those things, especially when you are a person who has personally had, you know, like a lot of intense, emotional, traumatic experiences similar to this character in this play. Coming down from those things is where they kind of miss the boat. But now there are a lot of different techniques that I'm discovering, you know, that have a very scientific approach you might might, um, respond to because they seek to explain that logic and to help you understand that logic and how to work with it. One of which is this thing called somatic experiencing. Have you heard of this? Or SE for short? My sister-in-law told me something about this, but I don't know very much about it. Does it work for you? Well, I've been doing it for a little bit. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a hands-on technique. And uh, obviously I couldn't go see anyone over the last year. I worked with somebody over video. Um, and it was very effective for me and it very much mirrored a lot of things that I had learned in theater school, a lot of things that if you have a meditation practice, um, people would respond to it. It kind of coincides with things like yoga, Pilates, things like that as well, because it is about, um, learning how your nervous system is speaking. That's what Mm -hmm. it's based on. Something called the polyvagal theory. Have you heard of this? No. Well, you know the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. And then this person's theory is that the vagus nerve, in essence, has three prongs. There are polyvagus nerves. So there's the dorsal uh, vagus nerve, the ventral vagus nerve, and then the parasympathetic system. 
So the way that it goes, it kind of feels like a three-act play to me. Like there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. In the beginning, there was the dorsal vagus nerve. And this is supposed to be the lizard, the lizard brain, the animal mm -hmm. brain. This is the part of you that responds to crisis and stimulus, right? This is the part of you that has the fight, flight, freeze, fawn response. And that is 500 million years old. That is our sense of how to react to the world. And then the parasympathetic system is our sense of how to react to ourselves in the world, I guess. And that's 400 million years old. This is my sense of self. And then the ventral nerve is the way we express ourselves to others. And that's supposed to be five, four, two million, 200 million years old. I remember being five, four, and two. I was like, where's three? Thank goodness for being obsessed with numbers. So the, the theory is that the trauma experience keeps us in a state of dorsal nerve activity that because it keeps our backs tense, it keeps our hips tense, it keeps our jaws tense, and it causes X, Y, and Z. And so the whole thing is supposed to teach you how to, it's almost like I made my own personal yoga that was to specifically reprogram the places that I was holding the most activity. Does that make any sense? Yeah. And yeah. it comes with this um, vocabulary, at least the way that I did it. There was a vocabulary that came with it, like 50 different words, just adjectives to describe what sensations you're, it's a sensation vocabulary. And I felt very, very affected by it because I've sort of reached my zenith of talk therapy. Although I like talking, as you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> so, but doing something where it was like, because I realized that like having this, I guess, complex PTSD, being in a state of shaking panic means that like getting things from here into the rest of me is where I get blocked because my body won't, you know, it won't store anything else. It's already in use. Hmm. It's kind of like when I want to unplug something from my computer, it's like, uh, you can't safely eject that because <laughs> close the other programs that are using it. I'm like, I closed every program. I closed that program. I closed that program. Do you want to force a stop? No, I don't want to force a stop. Let me just, can I just, that's basically... <laughs> the way that I'm thinking about how my body works. Um, so that something like that might appeal to you. I'm going to start another thing called NARM, which is an offshoot of SE that is specific to developmental trauma. Mm. The end. <laughs> no, it's really interesting. I, I mean, I have learned that you have to do things with your body. You can't simply mm -hmm. do them with your mind. You have to actually, you know, put your hand in the refrigerator or something yes. if for intrusive thoughts. You have to actually, you know, but but also I, uh, the last st stage of what you described in terms of communication, um, I think, accords with, with us. And I think that's part of the issue with, child sexual trauma or all kinds mm -hmm, of trauma mm -hmm. is the inhibition and the policing that's done against talk in public. 
um, around certain kinds of things. Uh, you get you get blamed or you get not believed or you get like, why are you talking Just about this? Shut or, down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's and, a bummer. Yeah. And I think that's part of why our society in particular, vis-a-vis, you know, maybe some others is so dysfunctional because we we don't want to hear it and we we uh, police it in in all kinds of ways but because it gets but, in the way but it's like yeah it gets in the way of productivity <laughs> of productivity if you if you can't get to work we don't want to talk about it yeah yeah and white supremacy male supremacy etc so i think um you know we need to do these therapeutic techniques but we also are going to have to do some political struggle to make it possible to do these kinds of techniques um, in our societies. Mm. From the micro to the macro. Any closing words besides <laughs> and, that? And back, right? From the micro to the macro and back. And back. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Linear thought, I feel like, weird needs to. Because I feel like a lot of these things that I'm talking about, S.E. Norm very much reflect a lot of Eastern philosophy, you know, like Buddhism. There's actually a lot of really interesting people who are putting some of those things together, somatic work and, and you know, mindfulness. They all go together. And so if you've ever done anything like that, these things will feel uh, familiar. They won't feel unfamiliar, just a different language. Yeah, and it's, it's part of, of the... You know, it is connected to Western supremacy because it's connected to the idea that we have nothing to learn from We've other cultures. It. You know, they're behind oh, the us. savages? Yeah, they're behind, you know, even India and China, but um, everybody's behind us. Everybody's at an earlier stage of civilization. And so people become very, you know, dismissive preemptively dismissive of stuff so i I think uh combating eurocentrism and combating western chauvinism to quote the oath keepers favorite uh cause (laughs) actually is connected i mean these things are connected to Mm -hmm. to making these kinds of changes uh linda dr professor linda martine alkov thank you very much uh for talking to me uh, do you have, do you have anything you'd like to promote <laughs> or to direct people towards, even if it's not your own work, even if it's just something that brings you joy? Uh, well, no, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I have a, an inhibition at self-promotion. Um, I just mm. have such trouble with it, but then promote someone else. People can look me up. There's a lot of really good, you know, work out there on, um, on, uh, white supremacy these days i look for the structural stuff i'm a little frustrated with some of the stuff that gets put forward that's focusing on on individual white reactions and individual white you know oh man stuff this is stuff i wanted to talk to you about but i'm really trying to let you go (laughs) yeah we we gotta (laughs) look look for the structural read history you know look for the systematic approaches um that's what we got to get on the table and you know, and people's motives, people's intentions. I don't even care. We can make some real structural change. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Professor. Wonderful to talk to you as always. And if you can't tell by me singing, and if you can't tell, 
This is the end of the show. Thank you very much to my guest, Dr. Linda Martine Alcov. Of course, thank you to Katrina doing her thing all the time, and I love her for it. I don't even know what I'm saying right now. Um, I just was doing her thing all the time, and don't I love her for it? I sound like I'm writing some weird character description about somebody I've never met that I'm describing to someone else I've never met. Anyway... Let me say all that again, but keep all this part so that way you guys get let in on the process. Am I right? Thank you to Dr. Linda Martine Alcoff. Thank you to my good friend, not Dr. Katrina Davis. Um, I asked Dr. Linda Martine Alcoff. I'm just going to say all of the names. I love saying all of the names. For a couple of recommendations for books that uh, she had mentioned, um, you know, she said that y'all should read about uh, y'all, and I'm including myself in y'all, should read about structures of things. Um, and so she mentioned a couple different books to me that I wanted to share with you. The first of which is going to be Black Reconstruction by W.E.B. Du Bois. Now, Black Reconstruction is a classic. I own it. <laughs> Not to brag. It's heavy. Um, also, it's uh, <laughs> so dumb. Also, The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter. I've been hearing a lot about this book, actually, um, so I'm excited to crack into it. Uh, also, The Racial Contract by Charles W. Mills. That's right. There's a W in the middle of the Charles and the Mills, uh, not to be confused with General Mills. Okay, I'm being silly right now. Okay, The Racial Contract by Charles Mills. Uh, also, I want to mention uh, Dr. Linda Martine Alcoff's book, The Future of Whiteness. Um, uh, she has a bunch of other books, of course, and has written in other things, blah, 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 yakety schmackety. But when considering Charles Mills or like Dr. Linda Martine Alcoff, um, also a gentleman named George Yancey, um, also I mentioned Maisha Cherry, then you're going to start hearing about uh, critical race theory. You might have heard about that from that Trump guy. Um, I don't even know if all of those people would um, love to be put under that banner. I'm not a fan of banners. I feel very Bruce about banners. David Bruce. But I want to give you that term because if you type that into a search engine or if you go into a bookstore, masked, of course, and you say critical race theory or you type in critical race theory, then you're going to see some interesting stuff that you need to be uh, seeing, reading, digesting, and also processing. Whew, I'm glad that I got that out of me. Hey, triple entendre? I'm not even sure. Anyway, guys, self-choir, bye. Bye.